Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to have you all here this morning. Uh, it's a wonderful day. I really love this time of year. I think spring is possibly my favourite season. It's just warm days, cool nights. Um, the days aren't too hot, so I can do long sermons and no one complains. Uh, <laughs> can't do that in summer. So um, it's what we're up to today. Um, today is a, is a great day. We're having a lunch after our service today. So if you're able to stick around, we're all going to have a meal together. It's just a time to, to share a bit of fellowship. If you haven't brought some food, that's okay. Um, I've brought a lot of food. I cooked a few lasagnas last night, so don't worry about that. I've, I've got you uh, covered, but we'd really love to have you come and stay and uh, have a meal with us. Um, it's just a good time of fellowship and, and getting to know one another. We're looking at our new series this morning. We're looking at peace for busy people, and our first lesson is on uh, knowing peace or understanding peace. In the 1960s, something really interesting happened. In the United States in 1967, there was a United States uh, Senate subcommittee that was launched by the president, uh, and it was about the number one problem that they thought would occur in the future. It wasn't nuclear weapons, it wasn't terrorism, it wasn't anything like this. The problem that they thought would occur in times to come was that there would be too much leisure. That people would have made their lives so efficient that there would just be leisure all around. Um, This uh, committee concluded that by the 1980s, people would be working so little they would have an average work week of around 20 hours a week. They estimated that the average retirement age would be 38 years old. (laughs) It's comical now, looking back at it, how wrong they were. And they weren't the only ones to make these predictions. Benjamin Franklin once predicted that um, the average workday in the near future would be something like four hours long. Um, The playwright George Bernard Shaw at the beginning of the 1900s, he uh, predicted that at the start of the 21st century, in the year 2000, that the average workday he thought would be two hours. He assumed that we would just be overflowing with busyness. You see, we, we've made the world so efficient. We drive fast cars on fast roads. We no longer, when we're cold, we don't need to go outside and chop down a tree and make a fire in a house. We just walk over to the wall and we press a button. We don't even need to start the oven anymore to cook a meal. We just grab one of those pre-made meals, put it in the microwave, press instant reheat and there we go there's dinner our life is filled with buttons that that make things faster isn't it instead of the arduous task of getting your keys and having to put them in your car door to unlock it now we've got a button that does it for us and it saves us so much time and now we're just filled with all this leisure time because of all these buttons aren't we we're just we're just overflowing with with free time and spare time we don't know what to do with all our free time well of course that's not true is it the more efficient and productive our lives have become. It hasn't meant that we've become less busy. In fact, from the 1960s, you know, they were predicting that as we got more productive and as things got more efficient, the work week would continue to decline and that soon people wouldn't be working very much. It's actually gone the other way. The work week has increased since the 1960s. Now we are are working at higher rates. 
um, as well as having technology that allows us to work from home and be connected to our emails when we're at home or be connected with a, a work phone or whatever it might be. Um, one study estimated that our leisure time since the 1970s has decreased by about 37%. So almost, almost halved. How did this happen? How did we get to this stage in our life? I want to go through the history of busyness with you and try and trace how we came to this moment that we find ourselves in. Here's a brief history of busyness itself. In the ancient world, they didn't have clocks. You didn't have a a, a clock with you as you walked around. You didn't have the time that was constantly with you. In the ancient world, they had two basic measurements of how to record time. One was sunrise and the other was sunset. And then they invented a third one which was about the middle of those two. When the sun was around about in the middle of the day, uh, middle of the sky, they, they called that the heat of the day. It's mentioned in Genesis 18.1 and a few other passages. You can see these, these basic time measurements. But Abraham wasn't, you know, he didn't have to pick up the kids from school at three o'clock or he didn't have appointments that he was making um, with Lot that were on Tuesday afternoon at 4.30. They didn't record time like that because they didn't have time measurements. By around the year 1500 or so, the Egyptians were starting to use the movement of the sun um, to come up with what they called shadow clocks, which were the kind of precursor to the sundials. In Isaiah, Isaiah mentions this idea of a shadow clock or a sundial. And so as we're moving forward through history, they had a few more measurements Um, to measure how time progressed throughout the day instead of just uh, morning, midday and evening. Then it wasn't until the 6th century that um, you have monks actually that try to break down the day into further increments. And they did this because of Psalm 119. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 119 and verse 164. Psalm 119, verse 164. It says there, Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous law. And so these monks living in a monastery in the 6th century AD, they were thinking, well, we need to praise God seven times. The day needs to be divided into seven portions. And so that's what they did. They, they divided the day into seven rough portions. It wasn't until the 12th century though that they could actually build a mechanical clock to measure those seven times of the day. And then um, the merchants and the businessmen saw the clocks that the monasteries had and they said, well, that would be helpful in our business. It would be helpful if we could make appointments and schedule things and keep record of when people are working and when shipments are made and when they're meant to arrive. So in the year 1330, Um, you see clocks moving out of the monastery and moving into public spaces. And that's when you have um, town halls and you have churches that ring a bell uh, every hour. And that's when the day is kind of divided into 24 hours. And then in the year 1430, you have the invention of the spring-driven clocks. And this allows for everyone to have a personal clock at home on their mantelpiece, the mantel clock. Now you don't just have to go to the town square to hear the time. You can actually have that accessible in your own home. And then a few years later, in the year 1510, you have the invention of the first pocket watch. And for the first time, 
time itself was portable. You could record time on the go, wherever you were, whatever you were doing. Then after that, in the 1660s, because we were measuring time so much, they invented the minute hand. And suddenly the, the time wasn't just broken down into 24 hours, but into 60 minutes uh, for every hour. And then uh, about a century after that, in the 1700s, that's when we have the second hand that's invented. And it's mainly for keeping um, track of uh, the times of races, you know, the, the horse races and such things like that. So... We went from a time of Abraham where we measured three times a day, the sunrise, sunset, and the heat of the day. And now, I'm sure almost all of you have a clock in your house, if not a clock on you with your phone or your watch or a pocket watch, if any of you have that. We have two clocks in this room here. I know at our house um, we have a clock on the microwave and we have clocks on our computers we even have a clock on the television we have clocks on almost all digital device devices and our lives are completely immersed in keeping track of the time in um, the 1800s they began to obsess over the time and that's when you have the release of day planners and and people writing schedules to keep track of what is happening every moment of your day in the early 1800s, that's when the Industrial Revolution kicked off in England. And in the Industrial Revolution, you have some assembly lines starting to be made. Now, an assembly line works if every person is there and every person is on time. And so these big businesses and corporations would start advertising that punctuality was essential for a good, um, virtuous and successful person. So they invented the phrase on time. You know, the phrase on time wasn't around until the Industrial Revolution. And we went from, being, from time being a novelty um, to it being a necessity. You have to know the time now. You can't get around in life without knowing the time. And I think you find the same thing. If you're booking a doctor's appointment, they don't say, well, just come you know, in the afternoon or you know, around sunset or that kind of thing. They give you an exact time, don't they? And you have to show up. And, and how does the... Um, the admin officer at your doctor's surgery field when you're 10 minutes late or 15 minutes late. They, they don't say, well, that's all right. You know, we, we don't really keep track of time. No, they're, they're keeping to a schedule. They have things that they have to get done and, and they don't appreciate people who don't keep track of time. Um, so in the Industrial Revolution, these businesses, they started making these big ads and they started... Um, putting out these big ads in the newspaper and all over town saying that if you wanted to be a good person, you had to be punctual. You have to keep a watch with you. You have to be on time because they knew that if people were on time, then their businesses would work well. And so one of these ads, um, I was looking at one the other day. You can look them up. They're really interesting. One of them says, if there is one virtue that should be cultivated more than any other by him who would succeed in life, it is punctuality. Okay, so punctuality was the key virtue of the Industrial Revolution and it continued on to today. Of course, Christianity doesn't say that punctuality is the most important virtue to cultivate in your life. Paul didn't say these three remain faith, hope and punctuality and the greatest of these is punctuality. Of course, um, punctuality is, is lovely and we appreciate that. Um, but to say that that's the most important virtue is obsessing about it a little bit too much, don't you think? Now we live in a world where we're obsessed with time. 
According to the Oxford Dictionary, time is the most used noun in our vocabulary. If you look up all the nouns that are used in all the books, and all the internet and all our speech, time is the number one noun that we use because we have phrases like on time, uh, behind time, out of time, dinner time, what's the time? We're constantly talking about time in a way that they never would have years ago before the clocks ruled our lives. And so we live in the era of busyness. We live in a world that is obsessed with using every second of every minute of every hour of every day. You only have to go to a bookstore and see the aisles of books they have on productivity and efficiency and making the most out of your day. You only have to see the, the diaries that they sell and the, the planners that they sell and all of the products that are, that are being targeted at us to make sure that we use our time most efficiently. Um, we live in a, a world where slow is bad and fast is good, isn't it? It's funny that slow is synonymous with bad now. I'm sure if you asked Abraham, is slow bad or good? He would say, that, that doesn't really make sense. Slow is good sometimes and, and sometimes it's bad. But in our world, if I said to you that the traffic this morning was slow, am I complaining or am I praising the traffic? I'm complaining, right? If I said the internet is slow, am I complaining or am I praising it? If I said you are slow, is that an insult or a compliment? Slow is bad in our culture. We live in a, a fast-paced world where anything fast is better than what is slow. We don't have time for things anymore. We live lives that are so busy, it's hard to schedule things in. Have you ever tried to schedule dinner with someone or coffee with someone or meeting with someone and you just can't find a time that works? You just you, you try for Tuesday night and Tuesday night doesn't work for them and you say, well, Thursday night? And they say, no, Thursday night doesn't work. And they say, what about Friday night? You say, that doesn't work for me. And you go on and on. I'm sure this is an experience that you're familiar with. The New Yorker um, cartoon... Uh, they, in the New Yorker magazine, they have cartoons all the time. And these cartoons describe everyday life and they kind of summarise the problems that we all face. And the most reprinted um, New Yorker cartoon is this. It's a man sitting at his desk and he's on the phone. He's, trying to, he's got his diary out. He's trying to schedule something with someone. And the caption is, No, Thursday's out. How about never? Is never good for you? <laughs> And the reason why that's so reprinted is because that's so relatable. Because we've all had conversations like that where we think, oh, well, we just can't catch up. We're too busy. We don't have the time. As I said, you can just go into a bookstore and you can see the number of books that are written to achieve things quickly and to get things done productively. You have books like this, um, Change Your Life in 30 Days by Rhonda Britton. Doesn't that sound good? Because I don't have time to change my life in, if it's going to take a couple of years or if it's going to take a couple of months, I've got about 30 days to change my life and, and that's all the time that I have. Uh, or you've got this, change your life in seven days. There we go. If you don't have 30 days, maybe you've got seven days to change your life. When I saw these titles, I thought, well, I wonder how quickly you can change your life according to these books. So we've got the 24-hour turnaround, change your life one hour at a time. So that's pretty good. It only takes 24 hours according to this book. And then I found this one, Change Your Life in 60 Seconds uh, by DiCarlo Eskridge. All right, but I'm sure you don't have time to spend 60 seconds changing your life. 
So we've got this one, How to Completely Change Your Life in 30 Seconds by Robert Warstall. And then I found this one, Micro Meditation, 10 Seconds Will Change Your Life. And you think, surely we can't. We can't go more than 10 seconds. But The Five Second Rule by Mel Robbins. Transform your life, work and confidence with everyday courage. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm disappointed. I, could, I searched and I searched and I could not find a book that was the one second to change your life. So if you want to write a book, that book is still out there. <laughs> but I did find this one, The Instant Life Changer. This realisation will instantly change your life. So that's pretty good, isn't it? Because we don't have time. We're too busy. And then you have other books. You have Instant Feng Shui, <laughs> Instant Yiddish. You know, I don't have all year to learn Yiddish, so I just want to learn it instantly. I don't know much about Yiddish, but I'm sure it takes more than an instant to learn Yiddish. We live in a world where we are just searching for how to get things done quicker. Faster is better. Multitasking is, is what we're all about. You know, the word multitasking didn't exist until the 1960s. It's that recent a word. And now we talk about multitasking all the time. How could you live life without multitasking? And I think most of us would say that our lives are busier than we want. I think most of us, if I asked you, do you want your life to be more busy or less busy? I'm pretty sure everyone here would say, I'll take less busy, thanks. I don't need more busyness in my life. I don't need um, to be more flat out. And we notice this, when you go around and ask people, how are you going? Um, you'll very regularly hear the response now, I'm good, I'm just so busy. I've just had a really busy week. I'm just flat out at the moment. Or we say, what are you, what are you up to this week? And they say, oh, I'm just full pace ahead. I've just got so much stuff on, my schedule is just booked up. And by the way, I'm not excusing myself from this. I'm not decrying other people for this. Um, Jesus Christ came to save busy people of whom I am chief. I recognise that, that this is a problem in my life and this is why I'm doing this series. This is why we're looking at this. But if I'm totally honest, my worst days are when I'm busy. I'm not my best self when I'm my busiest self. When I'm busy and stressed, I don't spend proper time caring for people around me. When I'm busy and, and have too many things taking up my mental real estate, I don't have the time and I miss the moments to encourage people and to look out for people who need building up. When I'm busy, I don't use the right words. I snap at people. You know, if you like to keep the time and you've ever been involved in a family where other people are running late, you know that that's not your best moment, is it? You know that when you're trying to get the kids in the car or the wife in the car or the husband in the car and you're trying to speed them up, you're not at your absolute best caring, loving self, are you? Those moments, we are, are not at our best. When I'm so busy, I get fatigued and my fatigue leads to me not controlling my emotions, not controlling my anger, not controlling my frustration. I know that my busy moments are not my best. And the Bible calls us in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And being sober-minded is the opposite of being busy, isn't it? Being busy means that your mind is full of things. Your mind is full of distractions and you're not thinking straight. 
because you've got too much on the brain. And when we look at the character of Jesus, we see a person who is never described as being busy. He's never described as having too much on. He's never rushing somewhere and neglecting caring for people. He doesn't snap at his disciples because he's just frazzled, he's got too much on his brain. You know, the gospel accounts, when you read through Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, they're almost all made up of Jesus talking to people who were interrupting his life. He didn't say, I don't have time for interruptions. You know, I've, I've got a schedule to keep. I've got a, a leper to heal and I've got to go to Jerusalem for the feast and I've got to teach the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I'm all booked up in my schedule. When his life was interrupted with people, when the woman came up and touched his garment to be healed, he was on the way to somewhere, but he stopped and turned around and made time for her. When the rich young ruler came to him, he didn't say, I haven't got time for this, mate. I've got to head down the road to preach the Sermon on the Mount again. It's, you know, it's in my schedule. Jesus made time for people, and we see that his busyness did not interrupt his love for others. So I think we're facing a busyness epidemic. This is my point, okay? We are used to living busy lives, you and I, because we live in 2019. We see busyness everywhere we look. When we look at our workplace, when we look at home, when we look at church, when we look all around our culture, we see busy people. And my point is to say, this is unique in history. It hasn't always been like this. We haven't always lived such busy, fast-paced lives. Everyone hasn't always been controlled by their schedules in the way that we are in 2019. Um, if I did this lesson in 14th century England, they'd probably be very confused on a sermon series uh, on peace for busy people. You know, according to the best data that we can get from historians, the average 14th century English person slept a good 10 hours a night. The average 14th century English farmer worked about a 30-hour work week. They didn't have school pickup. They didn't have the dentist appointment or the TV or the social media or the extracurricular activities or the bills to pay or the bins to put out or the mail to check, etc., etc. They didn't have all these things that were clogging up their lives. And what I mean by this is, is as Christians, we are called to be attentive to the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. We have to be aware of what culture we find ourselves in and what challenges might be there for us as Christians. And I think that we need to identify that busyness is a danger and a risk to our Christian lives. That busyness can be one of the biggest distractors and dangers to a healthy Christ-like life. In Romans 12 and verse 1, it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And maybe in 2019, that looks like redefining busyness and peace so that we can live our lives not at a 2019 pace, but at a Jesus pace. And maybe that looks a lot different to how we are living at the moment. So we need to learn what peace is. So let's define peace. Let's look at how um, the Oxford Dictionary um, defines peace. So peace is a noun. The first definition is it's freedom from civil unrest or disorder, public order 
and security. Okay, so this is peace as it's described as a, as a contrast to war times. Definition number two, it's freedom from quarrels or dissension between individuals or especially in early use between an individual and God, a state of friendliness, of amity and concord. So you know what this looks like when you have an argument with someone and then you reconcile and you make everything better, you come to peace with them and you have this interpersonal peace. That's another type of peace. The third definition um, that is given is uh, freedom from, oh, sorry, freedom from anxiety, disturbance, emotional, mental or spiritual or inner conflict, calm and tranquility. So you know this, the freedom from anxiety when worry is controlling your life and then you find relief. And the fourth definition is freedom from external disturbance or interference, especially as a condition of an individual. So this is being at peace, um, peace and quiet. That's kind of that fourth definition there, being in a state of quietness and, and rest. So four definitions there. Um, and I think one of the best ways to identify peace is to show you nature, isn't it? For some reason... Nature itself and looking at nature is inherently peaceful. When you look at this, you feel that peace. You grasp peace better than any of those definitions could. And that's why we holiday in nature. That's why we take walks in nature. That's why we have indoor plants. And that's why we try to, to bring these things into our life. Because we know that peace is there. There's no busyness there. There's no hurry. There's no conflict it's just at a slow and easy pace and something that we greatly admire. So I think we understand what peace is. Peace is one of those things where you know when you have it and you know when you don't. You know times of peace in your life and you know times of conflict. Just looking at these scenes of nature, these are the opposite often of busyness and hurry. Busyness is... It looks like the city. It looks like cars going everywhere. It looks like people rushing to places. And you look at nature and it com it's a complete contrast to that. So looking at peace, what can we sum up as, as to what peace is all about? I want you to notice in those definitions we just looked at, the one word that keeps on coming up at the start. And the word is Freedom. Peace is about being free, free from conflict, free from quarrels, free from anxiety, free from disturbance. What's the opposite of freedom? It's captivity, isn't it? About being slave to things. And what did Jesus come to do? He came to set us free, didn't he? He came to give us true freedom in our lives. Freedom from sin, freedom from iniquity, freedom from pride, freedom from the world, freedom from our schedules. I would venture to say that, that when Jesus said in, in John chapter 8, um, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, what he means by that is you're not going to be slave to anything anymore. If you're a servant of Jesus, if, if you become a child of God, you're not going to serve whether it's sin, whether it's pride, whether it's your boss, whether it's the diary that you keep in your pocket, whether it's the calendar that you have on the wall, you're not going to be a slave to any of these things anymore because you have become a slave to God. 
One of the um, problems is that when Jesus said the truth shall make you free, look what his disciples, look what the Jews said, sorry, in John chapter 8 and verses 35. John chapter 8 and verse 35. Oh, sorry, uh, verse 33, John 8, 33. It says, They answered him, We are offspring to Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus, of course, there says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. sad part is a lot of people in the world don't realise that they are captive to things. They don't realise that they are slaves to their money or their possessions or their status or their job or their career or their schedule. And I think the first step that we need to take is recognise that our schedules do control us a lot. And we can be captive, we can be servants of our busyness and our schedules. Many people in our culture think that they're truly free and yet they are enslaved. They serve their schedule even if it means it's to the detriment of their happiness, even if it's to the detriment of their families and their relationships, to their health. That's slavery, isn't it? when you serve something, even if it starts impacting your life in such a negative way. In David Henderson's book, Tranquility, Cultivating a Quiet Soul in a Busy World, he talked about a, an entrepreneur that he knew. And one day this entrepreneur was asked, how do you balance work and family life? And the entrepreneur started to cry. And he said, I mortgaged my house, I mortgaged my family, I mortgaged my wife, all for the sake of my work. And the only one I've managed to keep was my house. That's slavery, isn't it? That's not freedom. That's being trapped. It's being trapped to a schedule. Carl Jung said, busyness isn't from the devil, it is the devil. <laughs> if, uh, Corrie Ten Boom said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And Walter Adams said, hurry is the death of prayer and it only impedes and spoils on our true work. You've got to understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that you can just get rid of everything magically from your week and, and I want you to quit your job and I want you to not put out the bins and not pay the bills and don't do anything. I understand that we live in a busy world. I understand we live in a world that has all sorts of pressures. But Jesus offers us a solution to that. Here's the, the busyness problem. The problem is we're busy when we are busy we often let our schedule rule our life instead of letting God rule our life. And you know this, I know this. When I'm busy, what are the first things that go? It's prayer, it's Bible study, it's hospitality, it's being kind to my neighbours. It's my prime Christian responsibilities. What's the peace solution? The peace solution is that we have to look to Christ who is, according to Isaiah 9, the prince of, what, busyness? No, the prince of peace. What does 2 Thessalonians 3.16 say? May, may, now may the God of peace give you peace 
at all times. In Philippians 4 and verse 9, um, Paul says the same thing. If we practice our faith, the God of peace will be with us. Jesus said to his followers in John 14, 27, Peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. All of these verses are telling us that true peace, authentic peace, meaningful peace come from one source. They come from learning the way of the God of peace. And it begins by embracing Jesus' countercultural, slower-paced, never-too-busy-for-anyone lifestyle. In Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29, he says, Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden. The NIV says, all you who are weary and burdened. And doesn't that describe 2019 Western culture? Weary and burdened people. And he says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. And the rest that he's talking about isn't miraculously zapping you with some rest isn't miraculously giving you some energy pill that's going to give you more um, energy for your week. The rest that he's talking about is take on his lifestyle, take on his way of approaching life and and prioritising life, and you will find rest. So I've got an activity for this week. And your activity is this. I want you to stop and notice every time this week when your schedule is ruling your life. Especially notice when your schedule is interfering with something important. Especially when you think, I should be praying, but I have to do this. Or I should visit that person, but I have to do this. I don't want you to do anything about it. You don't have to make any big changes just now. We're going to talk about this more next week. But I just want you to notice how demanding and how authoritative your schedule is in your life. And to just mentally say, That's what my schedule is telling me to do. But has Christ given me true freedom? Has Christ freed me even from the busyness that I face? And next week we're going to look at how to restructure our week in a way that leads to more peace as Christ promised for us. Appreciate your time and attention this morning.